James had a childhood that would have indicated future success. He grew up in Southern California, and his father is a scientist. His mother is a registered nurse. They lived in an affluent neighborhood in San Diego. But by the time he was in middle school, James began to display some mental health issues. He tried to take his own life at age 11. But he did graduate from high school and also completed a bachelor's degree at the University of California, Riverside. He then decided to move to Colorado and work toward a graduate degree in neuroscience. By outward appearances, he seemed to be on the right track. But he continued to battle depression, and for several years, he was obsessed with the idea of killing. One day, he acted on that obsession. He walked into a movie theater with multiple guns and started firing into the crowd of people watching a movie. My guest today is Haley. She knows exactly what it's like to be in that situation, to be the target of an active shooter. On that day, in Aurora, Colorado, Haley was in that theater. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes. And it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. You were at the theater on a date with John, and this was your third date in a week, but I remember you had mentioned that you felt like you really, like he was almost still a stranger to you. Why is that? 
We met online like so many people nowadays, and we had a first date that went really well, but it was, you know, initial contact and first meetings and kind of surface stuff. But it went so well that I said, okay, this is this is my birthday week. I'm having friends over for a game night. I really like this guy. Let me invite him over and throw him to the wolf, so to speak. So that was our second date, but it was also with a crowd of people and public and not the get to know you kind. We were getting to know personalities and things like that. And that went so well (laughs) that then I said, okay, I have plans to go to the dark night on my birthday. And I invited him to go with me. It was a midnight showing and he accepted. So here we are a weekend on our third date. And yes, I barely, I barely know him, but I know I like him. I know he's a guy I want to keep getting to know. Let's talk about that night then. The you got in the actual theater. Can you just kind of describe the the layout? Very large theater, lots of I think there's maybe 16, 15 actual theaters. And one thing I didn't kind of realize, but there's stairs in the lobby and it's a double decker type of theater, so it's a big place. So we go in, you're coming on the left and the right of walking into the theater, there's the corridor that takes you to the room that opens up to the screen. There's floor seating, and then there's the stadium-type seating that goes all the way up the theater. Big theater, I think, is like 400 people. We came in on the left side of the theater, the screen being in front of us, and as soon as we come in, we turn immediately to the right and start going up those stairs to find our seats. It's packed. This is back when midnight showings were all the rage. People have on costumes, you know, they're dressed up, going all out, you know, so. And this was a big movie, too. Big movie. Yeah, yeah. All the big movies would get the midnight showings. That's how you knew it was the biggest thing, because people just couldn't wait till the next day to see it. So this was a Thursday, by the way. And here I am having to work on Friday at a midnight showing on my birthday of so that that that's, you know, true moviegoers really get it. If you know, you know, we walk up probably not halfway, but about close to halfway. And we sit in the end seat and the seat next to it. So I'm in the very end seat and John is to my right. Was that deliberate? I mean, when I go to a movie th- movie with my wife and I, I always like the end seat for some reason. But why did you choose those seats? Yeah, very good question. I actually usually sit in the middle because it's like, to me, middle towards the top. That's my spot if I can get it. The closer to the screen I am, I get dizzy and it's, you know, I just, so I don't like being close. But yeah, I always thought like the middle, you don't have to crane your neck. It's so if I had had my way about it, I would have been dead center center. But I think I'm pretty positive it was just crowded. It was busy. So we're just looking for two seats together that aren't on the floor at this point. And I mean, the energy was high. People were not sitting in their seats. They were standing. They were walking around. They were talking. Everybody's looking at costumes. Like, so there was, I mean, it was a packed house. So yeah, we just, I think we just picked the seats that were there. I am five feet tall, so reaching the ground is not always comfortable for me. So, like, I'm sitting Indian style in my chair. John has let me borrow his sweatshirt. I've got that in my lap. It's summer. I've got my flip-flops on. So, like, my flip-flops are on the floor. You know, I'm very cozy eating my candy at this point. (laughs) So, the movie starts and everything seemed normal. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Everything was fine. Everything was normal. It was about 20 to 25 minutes in. I see, so I'm, again, I'm on the left side of the theater. The screen is in front of us. And on the right side near the screen down on the floor is an exit door, which, of course, I didn't pay much attention to until very dark scene in the movie and that door opens. And that's never happened my entire life. So it was it was noticeable, A, because of the light, because it was so dark in the scene and in the theater. For anybody that's seen the Dark Knight movie, when this all goes down, Christian Bale's character, you know, the bat, whatever, he's not Batman at the time, he's his own Bruce Wayne. And him and his butler, I cannot remember that guy's name, uh, Alfred, are in the lair, you know, down in the basement in the cave. It's dark. It's very dark. It's one of those scenes they're looking at computer screens. So if you've seen the movie, you'll know. You'll know exactly that scene. So that's what's going on when the door opens. I see the light and I see someone walking through and my eyes, my mind says they're in full SWAT gear. Like they're in, there's a face mask, there's pads on the thighs, you know, there's pads on the chest. It looks like someone who is about to perform a, uh, uh, that kind of raid in the movies. You know, that's what this person looks like. And I'm immediately, th- lots of costumes and stuff, right? I'm immediately thinking, is this part of the movie? What's It's okay. Somebody's, everything's happening so fast. It's just these immediate thoughts, like, is this part of the movie? And right away, he tosses a canister of something. And at this time, I have no idea what it is, but it's got smoke coming out of it. And I I make a motion with my hands as I'm doing this because I'll never, ever forget that my eyes leave him and follow this can of smoke spiraling through the air. And it kind of goes in front of the movie screen up. And then obviously gravity starts to bring it down and it drops maybe four or five rows in front of me, drops on the floor, me and lots of people sort of are looking and kind of trying to see the canister as if that's going to clarify anything. Well, while all this is going on, we start to, I start to feel funny. I start to like be affected by whatever is now in the air from this smoke. My panic is immediately setting in as to what this smoke is and why it's affecting me. And I'm I'm getting very scared of the smoke, essentially. By the way, I found out later, two cans of tear gas were thrown that night. One was tossed in another direction, but I did not see it because my eyes followed the first canister. My eyes actually never went back to him the rest of the time. That was the one and only time I saw him because then it was pretty much mayhem. But uh, yeah, so John and I are still sitting in our seats the gas has fallen. It's filling the air. We look over to our left. And you know how you're walking upstairs and there's like three or four stairs and then a flat platform and then three or four more stairs and a flat pa- platform. It was like that. And on one of those platforms, there was a girl lying in the fetal position. I mean, because at this point, I guess people are starting to get up out of their seat and move around and, and whatever. And there's some noise. But I'm not really registering that. My brain's thinking about the gas and being affected by this gas. And we see this girl lying in that fetal position, and there is blood coming out of the side of her neck or her face or 
somewhere up near her head. She's kind of got her hand over it. And and this is when John and I realized at the same time, like, holy shit, something's going down. This is this is not a game. This is not a joke. This is not a costume. I think probably at that point, my mind starts registering that there are gunshots, you know, that, that that's the noise I'm hearing. It's strange because up until then, I've really only heard gunshots in the movies, you know, on the screen. And it doesn't sound anything like that in real life, or at least it didn't inside that theater. So my brain is just not putting two and two together with what I'm hearing and what's happening. It was more so when I saw her lying on the stairs that we start to figure it out. So at that point, John just starts like telling me to get up to do so. I'm not reacting. And I remember him like pushing me out of my seat, like move, you know, because you were in the end seat. So he was pushing you toward the aisle. Exactly. Toward the stairs. Right. Right. Okay. Right. My shoes were on the floor. I had my purse. I had candy. I had his sweatshirt in my lap. So like, I'm kind of fumbling around with my things. I'm not really thinking, to be honest, I'm just following John's instructions at this point. Like, I don't know if he pushed me onto the ground or told me to get down or whatever, but at this point we're on the ground. My body is lying face down on the stairs and I'm up the stairs. So my feet are towards the bottom. My head's towards the top. John is sort of lying over me and has an arm around me and he's literally like shielding and protecting me with his body. I could feel him doing that, but at the time I didn't exactly know what John's doing. I didn't find any of that out till later. It's a very different experience than mine. But what's going through my head as I'm now lying on the stairs is, okay, this person's in here shooting at us, trying to kill us. Why wouldn't he be trying to injure us with this gas that's in the air? This is what, because at this point, my eyes, my throat, I can barely breathe. It's uncomfortable. It's itchy. It's coffee. I'm thinking I'm being poisoned basically. My mind just was like, breathe into the sweatshirt. Don't breathe as much air as possible. Like that's really all that's going through my mind. At one point, I remember looking up at John and I don't know why there was this moment. I don't know if there was a break in the shooting and maybe it was a little more silent or something because that did happen. I'll explain that in a second. But I just kind of remember looking up at him and I've never felt this vulnerable in my whole life. And I was like, John. And I just, it was like, I was asking him what to do. I was so desperate for his leadership at that point. And thank God he was the type of person that provided it. 100% vulnerability. 100%. And if you had asked me before, I would have tried to tell you, this is what I would do. That's what I would do in a situation. You know, it's, it's funny what you think you know about something. And I was just a big old pile of bones that could not think to save my life in in that moment. How long do you think you were on the steps? It is hard to say because time definitely moved different for differently for me in that in those moments. It really felt like a long time. But in retrospect, I believe it was probably 60 seconds maybe 90 could have been less it was it was not a long period of time but it felt like a long period of time while you're there though the shots are being fired totally right? the whole time 
He then kind of says something. I have no idea if he told me with his hands or with his words to get up and we're leaving. I immediately start to go down the stairs because that's the way we came in. Well, John had figured out, and again, I don't know if he grabbed me or if he told me, go up or just pulled me and, and shoved me up the stairs. I'm not sure. But, but essentially, he was leading us to an exit that was up the stairs that I was not even aware of. Me and lots of people from the theater are, and John are shuffling out. And I definitely remember thinking the whole time, just please don't shoot me in the back. Please don't get shot in the back. I just don't want to get shot in the back. Like, just imagining that I'm going to get shot in the back on my way out. One other thing that really sticks out, and if this girl hears this podcast, please, God, reach out to me. I would love to hear from you of all people <laughs> ever in the theater. Um, there's one door that is immediate when you're leaving the theater, and then there's an alcove, you know, like a little alcove thing, like a space between the next door, which actually takes you out into the outside of the theater at the top level, I guess for light, right? So you don't open one door and just flood the, sh flood the theater with light. Well, in that space, John and I are finally in there. He's behind me. And this girl in front of me turns around and she goes, I forgot my shoes. And in my mind, I thought, fuck your shoes. But I didn't say anything. I didn't verbalize that. I didn't say to her, forget your shoes, fuck your shoes. Like she's turning around and acting like she's going back. I did not stop her. I didn't. It was just one of those things where I've, I don't think I still feel guilty. It's almost just part of the story, but it did make me feel guilty for so many years. Like, why didn't I stop her? Why didn't I help her? Why didn't I say something? And I can only hope that she caught herself or somebody else caught her and turned her around. And, but it's kind of weird how your brain, by the way, as she's saying, I forgot my shoes. I'm carrying my purse, my sweatshirt, both my flip-flops. I have all my things. I, I don't know how I did that, but I am carrying them out of the theater with me. If you saw that woman again, you only saw her for a flash. Do you think you'd recognize her? I wouldn't know her. I think I have a vision of her in my mind. Like, like race and hair color might be all I had, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't know her. And now it's 10 plus years ago. So you were in survival mode. You were in sensory overload at this point. 100%. A lot of stuff could have happened that your brain just blocked out or, you know, it's not one of your memories. Exactly. And, and I, I did come to find that, that that's very true. So yeah, at this point we're on the other side of the door. John is holding my hand. We're going down a staircase. We see the front doors. We're headed out of them. Now we're turning to the right. We're going to the car. John is holding my hand, dragging me the whole way. He is moving faster than me 100%. Again, I have my purse, my sweatshirt, his sweatshirt, and both my flip-flops in my arms. He's holding my other hand, and I'm just shuffling along barefoot. So, I mean, he literally held my hand to safety. We get in his car and we pull out of the theater parking lot. As we are pulling out, the very first cops and first responders are starting to come in. This is a little bit of the police radio communications at that time, followed by a short 911 call made from inside the theater. 315 and 3. 
14 for a shooting at Century Theaters, 14300 East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. Units responding to the shooting, switch to or remain on channel 2, channels back to normal. 315 and 314, there is at least one person that's been shot, but they're saying there's hundreds of people just running around. Lincoln 25, send me a whole bunch of available cars to all three districts. Copy, all available units respond to the theater. 316, okay. Cruiser 11, I'll be out. Cruiser 11, copy on scene. All units, we're going to patch the channel for the shooting. All officers respond to the shooting, 14300 East Alameda Avenue. Cruiser 11, I'll be out on the east side. Somebody is still shooting inside theater number 9, current employee. Lincoln 25, give me cops on the back side of it also. 514, I need the ambulance at X-Point Sable. I need the ambulance at X-Point Sable. Arapaho 911, is this reference to shooting in Aurora? Yes, ma'am, and I got shot. I got hit. You were hit? I got hit. Oh. Yes, I got okay, hit. hold on a second. Head. Do not hang right up. I, my... Sir, do not hang yes, up. I need to bring Aurora on the phone, okay? Do not hang up. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Oh, my gosh. I live at this point, maybe 10 minutes from the theater. So it's a very silent car ride home, a very like, uh, just a stupor type of car ride home. And we get there and sit on my couch. And it's more of that. We're just kind of looking around like, what do we do? I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. 
Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. We did try to call 911, and it was this kind of frantic thing on the other side of, uh, um, do you know who the shooter was? Are you injured? Are you, you know, sort of questions like that, just very, and then it's like, we're at home. We have no idea what happened. And they're just like, okay, thanks. Bye. Right. Like we're getting calls. Bye. So they got off the phone fairly quickly. I tried to call. The only people I could think at the time was to call my mom's. I have a stepmother who's been in my life since I was three, and I made a call to my mom. I made a call to my stepmom, and and strange enough, shout out to my dad, I called my stepmom and my dad answered the phone. And it's like three in the morning on the East Coast. I, I'm pretty sure my dad knew everything was not fine, and he, but he asked me, "What is everything okay? What's going on? And I just said, everything's fine. And I, and I hung up the phone. It was like in that moment, I couldn't speak the words. I couldn't tell them what was going on. And I couldn't imagine talking to anybody but my moms. And I think if I had had them on the phone, I pr probably would have just fallen apart. 
because I didn't have the words. Uh, so when he asked me, it was like, no, nah, I can't tell you. I got to go. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> I always find that a little strange fact. But since this happened and you've spoken to your dad, obviously, about it, mm-hmm. what was he thinking when you called and then said everything's fine and hung up? I don't I don't actually know how he felt about it, per se, because, you know, in the aftermath of all that, let's say he was upset with me. Would he have told me? No, not then. But knowing my dad, I just I don't think it bothered him. And I think he kind of understood, you know, it's sometimes you just want your mom. (laughs) And that was all that was about, you know. Um, So I do think my dad understood we slept for a couple hours. Now, again, mind you, third date, stranger, but here we are, and I'm clinging to this man for dear life. And we're we're spooning, you know, he's holding me. We're both in our clothes from the theater, which I realize when I get home, there's blood on a flip-flop. I have no idea where that came from, whose blood it was. Just in complete shock. Just in complete shock. I am originally from the East Coast, so, and this is happening in Mountain Time in Denver. So I started getting calls very early from people on the East Coast that are seeing the news that know it was my birthday, that know I am a moviegoer that has gone to the movies probably once a week since I could drive. And if it's Sunday, where's Haley? She's at the movies by herself with someone, doesn't matter. If it's a big movie coming out, Haley's going to see it. You know, my brother said later, I knew before I called you, I knew when I heard Aurora and Batman, I knew you were there because it was your birthday. That's the pattern it was for me to go to the movies, you know, and it was the strangest thing for people to call. And I remember two two friends in particular, Kenny and Candace called and they're like, I just saw the news and I'm, I'm sure you weren't there, but I just, you know, I just had to call and ask and, and I had to say, no, no, I, I was there. And this precedes the line of questioning that occurred this way for like to this day when I bring up, I was there. People, they can't hear it the same way that I can barely believe what I'm saying and finding the accurate words to express to somebody like, no, I was literally they're like, wait, you were seeing a movie at, at, at that movie theater? And I'm like, no, no, no. I was in the movie theater that like I watched this guy walk in the door and and shoot. He was shooting and, you know, it, it. but saying the words and absorbing those words, it was like nobody could believe it. They'd say, are you OK? And I'd say, I'm physically OK, but I'm not OK. You know, like it just was strange conversations. And there was a lot of calls that came that morning. I couldn't even tell you who. I just remember the first two. Because they were like five in the morning or something. And that's when John and I woke up and we turned on the news trying to start finding information about, does anybody know anything yet? What's going on? How many people have been hurt? What's, you know, just what's going on? And I think somewhere we stumbled on, on the TV that they were having everyone that was a victim there to come to this one school and meet there. So that they could, A, catalog people, because at this point, if you've driven off, they don't even know you were there. There's no record for buying a movie ticket or there's no roster, right? So there could be people missing off the list to this day if they never sought any help or therapy or asked for anything or went to the hospital. They could have just gone home and that could have been the end of it. You know, so it was they were sort of calling for people to come and meet at this place. 
John made a couple calls to his family. My family was calling like crazy at that point. That's when I spoke to my moms. That's when I spoke to my brother. Everybody's in shock and disbelief. And then John and I decide that we need to separate. He needs to go home. I need to shower. We need to just, we've called out of work, of course, you know, but we just need to kind of go to our houses and figure out what to do. He did not want to go to the place, um, the school that they were asking everybody to come, but I did go there. I'll never remember the ladies' names. I wouldn't know them if I saw them anywhere on the street, but shout out to them too, because they really helped me that morning. It was just, they helped me understand that that almost everything I was feeling was normal f- for the situation, because this was all new to me. That level of shock, that level of guilt fear, just, just just all of it. And then I'm immediately feeling responsible for John, for John's feelings, what he's feeling, how he's doing. And who were these people? Who were these ladies? You know, I they just were like some sort of people that volunteered for, for this. I don't know how they pulled it together so fast. I genuinely don't. But were they were they trained counselors? Is that who that were brought in or I honestly don't know. Yeah, I honestly don't know. I feel like they they did have ex- some expertise. I don't think they were just people straight off the street because they really seemed to know about what I was going through. So I feel like maybe they were somebody that had volunteered or somebody that had been called in. And there were lots of people there. There was so there was a room that you kind of walk into a big old room and you, you just kind of went to a desk or a chair somebody greeted you and you just talked with them you just told them your experience what you were going through i cried with these ladies they helped me they comforted me but then i also went into another room and cataloged my name my information and was sort of assigned a number and that was with the police you know they were just trying to find out everybody that was there at this point i can kind of only imagine seeing and talking to john And I'm sort of desperate to hang out with John, honestly, because I feel completely safe around him. He's also the only person that understands this crazy thing that I have no idea how to put into words at this point. But then I also thought about my best friend, Michaela. And if I were to go anywhere, if I were to go anywhere for support, whenever I'm ready to not be alone, not be on the phone all day long, you know, not because I was taking calls all day long. And I barely remember any of them. People tell me now, like, what we talked about and what we said. And I'm just like, oh, my God, that's so weird to hear it. It's like I wasn't even there for that. I did eventually end up, John needed to do things. He needed to stay with his family. I found out, okay, John and I are not getting back together today. Uh, I showed up on my friend Michaela's doorstep. And uh, she proceeded to basically pick up the, the muddled pieces the whole weekend. You know, I was in bed. I remember she would ask me questions and everything was, I don't know. She'd say, do you want to eat something? I'd say, I don't know. She'd say, well, are you hungry? I'd be like, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, you know, also like the news was on and this was one of the first really big mass shootings in a place where we all previously felt safe, if you will. That I find that curious because- Columbine was in Colorado. Was that far enough away that you didn't really have that connection and you felt safe or? Well, it wasn't on my radar like that because I didn't live in Colorado when that happened. I had heard of it just like probably most of us in the country had, but it wasn't, it wasn't 
real to me. And I think I was also much younger when Columbine happened and nothing against age or that younger people can't interpret things. But you just you have a different attitude about life when you're younger. You just are a little bit more clueless about the frailty of things. And so, yeah, I I knew about it, heard about it, probably didn't know many details, didn't know much about it. And it wasn't connected to me as a Coloradoan. But yeah, when this happened to a lot of other Colorado people who were here for Columbine, it was a hard, hard hit to the community. How long after this was the trial? I mean, they they caught the guy right away. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about that because that's an interesting side bit. Little did we know when we're sitting in the theater, waiting on the movie to start and picking our seats and yada, yada, he was sitting in there too. He had bought his ticket and he was sitting in the theater and he was planning and plotting. And somehow he had gone, well, not somehow, he had gone over to the exit door and propped it open. He made it so he could come back in that way later. That's how that happened. He did it himself. So at some point, we're all settling in. I don't know if the movie started, whatever. I don't know when he left, but he was there and then he left after the doors propped open. So then he gets in his car, drives his car around to the back of the theater and, you know, preps whatever. This was the SWAT outfit, right, that I'm previously describing. This is the stuff he's putting on. It was all things he had bought off the internet, we find out later. He had bought his weapons. He had bought something like 4,000 rounds of ammunition, some god-awful amount of ammunition. He had souped up the gun. He had a shotgun, but he also had a AR-15, I believe that's the right type of weapon and he had bought one of those things that you attach to it that allows it to shoot more rounds at a time so like maybe ar-15 i think it comes with 15 rounds there's that round thing or whatever something you attach and it then you just have this chain of bullets coming out like that's what he he had i don't know if they were attached to him or i don't know but he had modified the weapon and um had all his gear on and obviously was getting uh, what I later came to find out was tear gas, not poisonous gas, thank God that I was breathing. He got all that together and, and, and that's essentially then when he came in the door. From John's perspective, John is paying attention. John is watching the shooter. John is looking at what he's doing, where he's going. He's formulating a plan while all the shooting is going down. While I'm a lump on the floor, John's watching and he says in his mind, okay, at some point these bullets are going to run out. He cannot shoot forever. He, he has to run out of ammunition. He will have to reload. When that happens, I'm grabbing Haley and we're going out this particular as it, like I had said before, that he figured out was up the stairs. This was our escape route. He had it planned. Well, what happened was that part of the gun that he added for the extra bullets, it got jammed. But John is watching. So he knew he's struggling with his weapon. Something's going wrong. And when this was happening, the the shooter dipped behind the wall on the other side of the theater. So he's on the right side of the theater, where on the left. He goes behind that corridor where you come into the theater. So he's kind of hidden from John for a few minutes. That's when John grabbed me and, and we ran out. Unfortunately, after we left the theater, there was more shooting. There was more killing. There were 
hundreds of people trapped inside there to go back to your middle seat question. You know, if I had been where I normally sat, we could have been trapped. There were people that were alive that were trapped under bodies that were injured. There were people that were trying to get out that couldn't because there were too many people in a row. And if there were people in front of them that were like me, that were lumps on a log, they might not have been able to move, you know? So so there was a lot of people still in there. And when first responders and all those cops came into the theater after John and I left, they came in to carnage still unfolding. And a lot of people there had a very different experience because let's say somebody else had their purse on the floor and didn't grab it. Well, now they're stuck out in the parking lot, their purse, their phone, their keys, everything's inside the theater. And it's now part of the investigation or what. And either either way, it's not accessible that night. So they can't leave. But the parking lot is also blocked off because the cops don't want people leaving at that point. So John and I literally, I mean, I always say John got me out of there as fast as he possibly could. He saved your life. I, he absolutely he doesn't see it that way and wouldn't term it that way, but he absolutely did. I later found out John has military experience and used to be in the Navy and knew what tear gas was. And while it was affecting him and, you know, a, a problem, he certainly didn't think it was poisonous gas like I did, right? Very different interpretation of he knew the exposure, knew what it felt like, and knew that it wasn't going to hurt him in that regard. After the gun was unjammed, like I said, more shooting, there were shotgun shots, uh, there were 56 people, no, 58 people injured that night and 12 people killed. You were asking about when the trial was. Um, within about a year, I think is when the first thought of the trial started coming through. And but but it ended up being, I believe, three years, two to three years before full sentencing actually happened. These things took a lot of time trying to get us all together and figure out how we all were and then figure out, you know, somebody like me, not a very good witness. My eyes left the shooter, followed tear gas, never saw anything else after that because I'm face planted. John, on the other hand, very good witness. But John didn't want to be involved in the trial. And I inevitably decided that I didn't either. A, because I did not believe I would benefit the case in any way. If I did, I might have felt obligated. B, I decided ultimately it just was not good for me. It was not going to be good to be caught up in that. I, I was dealing with enough. So much guilt surrounding all of these things. I felt like I should do something and and I had to come to terms with the fact that, yeah, it was okay for me to not be involved. So that, that was what I chose to do. One thing I found really interesting is that you went on a retreat after this. Prior to going on that, you were pro-death penalty. After that, you were against the death penalty. Can you talk about what this retreat was and how it changed your mind? The shooting happened July 20th, 2012. And I went on the retreat in February, March of 2013. At this point, I had done a little bit of therapy, but I still was in a very rough state of trying to process. And I kind of felt like this is do or die. If I don't chase something to heal myself and to under you know to just 
just get a deeper understanding of what I'm feeling, I am not going to be okay from this because the traditional therapy and the group therapy and even going back to the movies, which all of which I had done at this point were just not, it's like I needed a ton of answers, but I had no idea what my questions were. And that's how I felt every day. I had researched this, this 10 day silent meditation retreat. Somebody had told me about it about a year or two before. So it was on my radar already. And I remember going to the website, reading everything and thinking, oh my God, this is way too extreme. No freaking way am I doing that. Well, fast forward to this. And now I'm looking at it like, this is my answer. This is, this is what I need. I would love to, can I give the website for this organization? Sure. And we'll have it in the show notes too. Okay. www.dhamma.org. D-H-A-M-M-A.org. It's called Vipassana Meditation. It's very old, comes out of Burma and India. It's usually done extreme extended periods of time where you are silent. They've whittled it down to being 10 days in America because that's a more practical time frame. But if you do less than 10 days, you can't submerge. You do not read. You do not write. You do not listen to music. You have no technology. You do not speak for 10 full days. Vipassana comes not only with meditative techniques and a particular path that you follow instead of saying a mantra, for example, you focus your brain on your body and it's just a very specific technique. It comes along with you don't hurt other beings. Like there's there's a there's a lot of philosophy behind it. You don't eat meat. It's a vegetarian diet while you're a vegan diet while you're there. And you really just meditate 14 hours a day, 12 to 14 hours a day. It's it's a very physically painful and very uncomfortable inward journey. I'm not kidding you when I say five hours into the first day, 9 a.m. on the first day, I had a massive panic of what have I done? I, I, this is the longest day of my life. It's only been five hours. How am I going to go 10 days? You know, but you fast forward into this technique and you start to submerge yourself and it becomes your life, you're only inside your own head and your own thoughts. You can't comfort someone else. You can't receive validation from someone else. You can't run something by anybody else. It's an inward journey like I've never experienced anywhere in my past. And it was very powerful, very, very beneficial. So fast forward, I come out of my retreat. I have a call from the lawyers. And the lawyers, if you were on their list, hundreds of people from that theater I got asked many questions by the lawyers. What was my opinion? Did we want to chase the death penalty? Did we want to go for life imprisonment? I went into that retreat thinking death penalty all the way. You take lives, you sort of deserve for your life to be taken. And I was 100% fine with that. I came out of this retreat and that question was posed to me. And all of a sudden, I feel completely different because... It's one thing to say, I don't care if this person lives or dies, because I don't. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't, I don't have any feelings towards this person. I don't give him my hate. I don't give him my love. I just kind of think about him as if he doesn't exist. I don't give him any more power than he already has had over my life is how I see it. But if you ask my vote, if you ask my opinion... I came out of this whole situation in that retreat feeling like, no, 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 now that's on my conscience, that's on my heart. And 
I want nothing to do with being responsible for someone else's death. Even if they do deserve it, that's not something I want to inflict or have a vote. So I, I did end up voting life imprisonment. He did end up getting life imprisonment. I believe that majority of the victims actually did want death penalty. But after the case and the trial all unfolded, he ended up getting 12 consecutive life imprisonment sentences. He will never get out. About a year after the trial was complete and he was sentenced, I got one final email from the lawyers that said basically his life was a living hell in prison, that he was in solitary confinement all the time because people in prison wanted to kill him. Nobody respected what he did or I don't know why, but even among criminals, what he did was apparently pretty messed up. Well, it's pretty cowardly. Yeah. People you don't even know. There's no personal connection. Not saying that it's okay if you kill someone, because, but at least you have a reason to think that particular person slighted you or did you wrong or right or wrong. You can kind of wrap your head around that. But yeah, walking into somewhere and, and affecting four to 500 strangers in that way is it's, it's hard to understand. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's this whole other side of, of his plan that night that furthers his sort of evil nature or disturbed nature or sick nature, whatever. I guess not my job to figure out what was wrong with him. Clearly something was wrong, though. I don't think he would have done this if not. But he had his apartment completely rigged up as a massive bomb. So while he is driving around to the back, he makes a call. He makes it so so that cops are going to his apartment building. In his apartment building, he has it rigged up. It's it's like wired, and and I don't know what kind of chemicals and things. Perhaps you'll find that information somewhere in the ether. That, but he had it set up where if you open the front door of his apartment, it would have blown up. It would have blown up his apartment and and all the people in it. Somehow, one of his neighbors. I actually met this person later, and I had the chance to hear their side of the story when their hand was on that doorknob. And they were about to open it and their gut telling them, don't do this because he was playing again. It's midnight, one o'clock, right? He's the music was playing crazy loud and it had been playing crazy loud for a while. So the neighbors were getting more and more agitated, more and more aggravated. And, and his idea was to bait them to his apartment to open the door. So the neighbor comes over and the doors open enough that, that, they're like, I could just push the store open. It's not latched. But their gut said, don't do that. This is weird. Something's going on, whatever. They called the cops. And thank God, none of that blew up. That whole part of his plan did not go the way he wanted. And what we found out later is he wanted cops and first responders to be distracted so that they could not come and help at the theater. That was the two-part plan was to, so the real carnage could happen at the theater. And thank God, by the grace of God, that it didn't work out that way. Twelve people died. That's why he got 12 consecutive mm-hmm. life sentences. Exactly. How have you dealt with survivor's guilt? Are you kind of, have you processed that completely now? I, I have processed it completely at this point. But of all, you know, I think first and foremost, I came out with a lot of fear. Fear of going back to the movies, fear of how am I ever going to enjoy my birthday again, fear of, you know, am I going to find joy in something I've loved my whole life, just fear all the way around. Because of that fear, the first thing I did was decide to go back to the movies. I was like, F this guy, he took enough, he's not taking my love of the movies, I'm going to face this. And I... Three months after the shooting, I went back to my first movie. I went in the middle of the day. I went to a comedy. It was all very well planned. I went with two of my best friends. I picked a theater that was way across town because I was like, no, the layout of this and nobody can get in here. And it's a it's a double decker and the exits. I, I, I mean, it just I was so anal about it. But that's what I needed to do to get comfortable. The fifth movie that I went back to see was The Dark Knight itself because I was like, I was excited about that movie. I wanted to see it. And you better believe I I hyperventilated halfway through that movie. I went with my roommate and she'd have to put her hand on me. She'd say, are you okay? And I'd just be like, <sighs> you know, just, just roughing through it. 
Then I said, okay, now I'm finally ready for therapy. I always knew I would go to therapy, but there was also a part of me that's just like, I don't even know how to talk about this. So God bless the city of Aurora. They provided counseling services for any victims that wanted it. There were funds that came from I don't know where, but they were there for us. And I took advantage of 10 sessions with a therapist who helped me so much. I will never, ever forget what he said in the turning point of me finally starting to process my survivor's guilt. He said, I would be more worried about you if you didn't feel guilty. You know, think about this. He says, there's a bubble of logic and there's a bubble of emotion. Logically, we have to know you couldn't have done anything. It was not your fault. You wanted to say something you wanted to say fuck your shoes to the girl and and you couldn't like none of those you know physically these things happen to us when we're in shock when we're experiencing things we've it's like you can't process your autonomic nervous system goes in your fight or flight kicks in literally system shut down you you literally just cannot do things and i'm starting to learn all this but that's all in the logical realm as a human I still feel bad that people died around me and I didn't do anything. There's nothing that will ever change that per se. And and he pointed out to me that that's a good thing. You have a big heart. You'd possibly be a psychopath if you could care less that, that this happened that way. So when you separate that logical bubble and that emotional bubble, you should, as a human, feel guilty. It's okay. You just don't want to be then controlled and run and beat yourself up, up over that guilt because you also have to balance the two. But it just made me feel better. He he normalized like, oh, you're right. If I didn't feel bad, what would that say about me? But survivor's guilt 100% was by far. The, the, the I dealt with the fear very quickly. And in fact, I'm not fearless now, but I am living a life that has so... I travel the world alone. I do things alone all the time. I go camping alone now. Like I... I embrace things that I don't think I ever would have done without this bad thing happening. But yeah, getting over that survivor's guilt and settling in what I didn't do. And some of that was guilt towards myself. I don't know if guilt is the right word, but to go back to that vulnerability. And when I said John's name and I just never saw myself being a puddle of a person on the floor. I'm at lunch one day. I'm at Chick-fil-A ordering my food. And the lady behind the register says, weren't you in theater nine? And I'm shocked. This is a year, you know, 10 months later. Nobody's ever said this to me. Nobody's ever recognized me outside of group therapy with other victims and things like that. I had met this girl previously at a group therapy session, didn't recognize her, but she recognized me. After we were blown away by that initial meeting, we she took a break. We went over and sat in a booth right there in Chick-fil-A and we talked and we cried and she altered the course of my thinking because her and her boyfriend were in the theater that night with a couple other friends. All of them were injured, but her boyfriend, worst of all, hearing her story, it's not about comparing, but I, in some ways, I do feel like what she had to go through was worse than what I experienced because he was bleeding. He was very injured. She knew it. And then they got separated and she couldn't find him. So 
she's now calling hospitals, driving to different hospitals, trying to even find where he's located, you know, and here I am safe with John sleeping in my bed, cuddling. You see what I'm saying? So I immediately am sort of thinking, God, what do you have to feel bad about Haley? Listen to this poor lady's story, you know, but she goes on to tell me that they've now decided to get married. They're engaged and they've decided to get married on the anniversary of the shooting. And she said that their faith in God and their belief in positive can come from negative things and that you can recover and you can move on and you can be a whole person after a tragedy. They wanted to rewrite the story of that day. (laughs) And I mean, I'm crying, you know, I'm crying in the booth. They invited me to the wedding. I went to the wedding, cried the whole time. (laughs) The other two people that were in the shooting with them were in their wedding. I was just a beautiful and and here I am thinking, I'm dreading my birthday coming up. I'm dreading that day. I'm I'm questioning if I can ever enjoy it. And here they are choosing that date to get married and and rewrite their own story. It was just the most beautiful thing ever. So shout out to Eugene and Casey for that beautiful inspiration. They are still married. They have three kids. I still see them on social media and we talk every now and again and reach out around the shooting anniversary and things like that. But yeah, that's what really started to help me with the survivor's guilt. Can you just, uh, as we wrap up, talk about the movie theater. They had a grand reopening. Yes. I know obviously they were closed for an extended period of time, but you were allowed to go into the remodeled theater even before the public. It was so beautiful what they did. Um, they were going to be having a grand reopening. They, like, like you said, they remodeled everything. They changed uh, theater one through 15 is now theater A through J or whatever. You know, they, they remodeled the entrance so it didn't look the same when you, but anyway, they invite us to go. They said before the grand opening, we'd like to have you here, just you and John. And we, we drive up, there's police outside. It's blocked off, very safe. We got a police escort inside. Once we get into the lobby, there was one representative from the movie theater who escorted us into the new theater. This is when I see the whole remodel and how beautifully they did it. The bathroom entrance is now the entrance to the theater. So like when I walk in there, it doesn't even look the same, which is great because honestly, that would have been so triggering. They really thought that through. They changed colors. They changed the seats. They changed everything. It it was really well done. And John and I just got to walk in there and just have our have our time and space with no one else, just that one representative and that one police officer uh, inside the whole theater. So they set that 10 or 20 minutes aside for just me and John. They did that for anybody that wanted it. So about six or seven months after the shooting, they opened back up and we watched the first Hobbit movie. The mayor spoke. You know, that's when I had an opportunity to meet people and hear stories that I that I had still never heard, piece together even more information. You know, a year later, six months later, I was still meeting people and getting parts of the story that I had never heard before. I have a feeling when I listen to this podcast, because of your research, I'm going to hear pieces of this story I've never heard before. You're a good example of how we can go through trauma, but we can still recover and come out the other side. This hasn't defined your life. No. I mean, in some ways, it's almost defined it by 
being so hard and recovering from it. You know, it doesn't define me as a person for sure, but the things that I had to do and go through to recover have absolutely defined who I am as a person at this point. And I lovingly say now the worst thing that ever happened to me is the best thing that ever happened to me because it's brought so much growth and change and perspective that I would have never had. Compassion, understanding of the other side of things that, that you, like I said before, you think you know what you'll think and feel and do and, and you don't until you get there. James Holmes is currently incarcerated at the U.S. Penitentiary Allenwood in Pennsylvania. And that 911 call you heard during the story, that was Zach Goldich, a 17-year-old high school student at the time. He survived being shot in the neck and today works as a first responder. If you'd like to see pictures of Haley or get a full transcript of this episode, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com slash 165. Hey there, Scott. My name's Chris Jones, and I uh, just want to say I've really been enjoying your podcasts since discovering it about a month ago. I'm currently a full-time rideshare driver with over 11 years and 11,000 rides under my belt. And got to say that podcasts like What Was That Like really help pass the time between pickups and while in route. I just listened to episode 73 about that pilot whose small airplane crashed into the forest, and in your intro commentary at the beginning of the episode, you played actual audio from a commercial airline flight as it made an emergency uh, landing, but you gave credit to the flight's pilot for making the announcement over the cabin loudspeakers instructing the passengers how to prepare for a possible crash landing. Now, prior to becoming a rideshare driver, I was a flight attendant, and I worked for a large regional airline for eight years and probably close to 4,000 flights. And upon hearing the bracing instructions in that clip, I knew immediately that it was not the flight's captain giving those instructions, but was, in all likelihood, the lead flight attendant or a flight attendant in that crew delivering part of what's known in some airlines as a planned emergency briefing. This is where a more thorough and detailed set of instructions is given to the passengers when there's not enough time, or rather there is enough time, to uh, do so before the emergency actually takes place. Uh, pilots wouldn't provide these instructions from the flight deck because it's the flight attendants that are trained to handle the aspects of all passenger safety issues and any emergencies that occur. The pilot's sole job is just to keep flying the airplane and managing whatever crisis is threatening the flight. So being a former stew, as we used to call it, it's a real peeve of mine uh, whenever I hear the mainstream media report that, quote, the pilots have their hands full getting the stricken airplane on the ground and also getting the passengers out of the cabin afterward, end quote. I once actually heard uh, CNN commentator Wolf Blitzer say nearly these very words in his reporting of the emergency landing made by an express jet aircraft a number of years ago. In that instance, it was a small regional jet operating the service and was only required by regs to have a single flight attendant working in the aircraft cabin. So she or he would have had their hands pretty full single-handedly ensuring the successful evacuation of 40 to 50 passengers following that landing mishap. And we're trained for that, so 
it's not unusual to only have a single flight attendant. Uh, I believe the regs say that below 60 passengers, uh, only one flight attendant on U.S. aircraft is required. So it's quite a demanding job in that respect. And uh, there's a reason that flight attendants undergo six to eight weeks of intense training to earn their wings. And I got to say that serving up soft drinks and pretzels from a cart is about 1% of what all that training entails. While the job of being a flight attendant can be and is a fun and rewarding one, it's also a demanding and often thankless occupation. So when I get a chance to correct errant reporting and give the credit where it's due, I take it. Thanks for allowing me the opportunity to set this record straight. And please know that my intent here was only to offer constructive correction to your episode. Keep up the great work, and if you ever need a flight attendant on the show to illuminate what a fun, crazy, hair-pulling, smile-through-the-tears job it is, I'd be happy to take my turn at the mic. Thanks again, Scott, and have a great one. Big thanks to Chris for providing that information. I always appreciate it when someone takes the time to point out something I've said that was incorrect. And if you'd like to hear the episode he was referring to, it's episode number 73, titled, Matt Crashed His Plane in the Wilderness. And Raw Audio 38 is now live. The Raw Audio episodes are extra exclusive episodes with actual 911 calls and the stories that go with those calls. In this episode, you'll hear about an off-duty police officer who answers the door, prompting his wife to call 911. Oh my gosh, he's good. Okay. He's, they're in an altercation. You have to get to our house from eight. Yeah, yeah they're coming as fast as they can. Okay, keep that door closed. Okay. A grandmother calls when she realizes her house is on fire. Okay. Okay, ma'am, are you able to listen? They're coming. They're coming. Are you inside of a room? Where are you? And a not so smart thief accidentally dials 911 while committing a felony. Okay, we got it. Thank okay, you. Pat. Make sure you get that number locked in, okay? Okay, we've got the whole recording. All 38 episodes of Raw Audio are available to binge, and you can try it for free. If you use an Android phone, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus. On an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast feed and click on Try Free. When you sign up, you're not just supporting the show. You also get all of the regular What Was That Like episodes without any ads. It's a no-brainer. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lai. And now we have the listener story. I have to admit, I love this segment of the show. People send in their personal story of something that happened, usually about 5 to 10 minutes long, and that's how we end every episode. And you can send in your story. Just record it on your phone and email it to scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This week's story is from a listener who had a bad interaction with someone you'd normally expect to trust. Stay safe, and I'll see you back here in two weeks with the next brand new episode. I just woke up from a pretty crazy nightmare, but that's not why I'm calling. I'm calling because of the source of that nightmare. Just last weekend, I was assaulted just outside of my own house about 11.30 p.m., and I was having a small open fire in my small fire pit, portable, just outside of my home. 
in Columbus, Ohio. I live in a bad neighborhood, and uh, a lot of people feel their need to protect themselves. So you'll see people waiting around for their DoorDash to arrive with, like, a banana clip hanging out of their pocket, you know, some big extended clip for a pistol. Very obvious kind of stuff. I was approached by a security guard, a would-be security guard, and he seemed polite enough, was asking me what I was doing, and I said, I'm just having a little fire. Um, he says, well, what, so you're going to clean it up and clean it up when you're done? I said, yeah, I'm just I'm not going to walk away from an open flame. I know better. He says, yeah, a lot of people aren't smart enough to do that. And I said, yeah, I agree. He starts asking me where I live and if I belong there. And I said, look, man, I'm not going to give you any of my personal information, but uh, I do belong here and I do live here. And he says, well, I'm going to need to identify you and confirm that you live here. I said, well, I'm not going to give you any of my personal information, so what happens next? And uh, he says, well, I can physically remove you. I said, no, you're not. You should probably call the police or a supervisor. And he quickly cut me off and said, I am a supervisor. And I said, well, let's call the police. And I pull out my phone, and I go to look up the non-emergency number, and I tell that to him verbally. I said, look, I'm going to call the non-emergency number because I have time. Long story short, my phone died right in my hand. And this guy starts asking me if I have any weapons. And I told him, I said, I'm polite enough to tell you, I don't have any weapons on me. I'm not going to make any moves against you, but I belong here. And you should probably get the police here because I'm not going to give you any of my information. And I asked what happens next. He says, well, I'm, I can physically remove you. And I said, no, you can't. And so guy gets behind me and he starts yelling, pull your hands out of your pockets, pull your hands out of your pockets. And I've got my little 75-pound pit bull with me and she's just all love and all kisses and she sees him grab a hold of me and he pulls out a taser and he's tasing me in my chest. Well, this guy flips me and he's thrown me on my back now and I've landed on my back on a pile of rocks and dirt. I try to stabilize myself on his leg and he grabs my jacket and wraps it around my throat and he's choking me. And uh, in this time, my dog's flipped out of her harness when he flips me the first time. Like, he pulled back and the harness came slipping right off of her. But anyways, this guy's holding me down by my throat and by my neck. And he's got his knee on my chest and he's telling me, tell me where you live, tell me where you live. And out of threat of coercion, I see my little dog, see my dog running around without her harness, freaking out. I tell him that I'm at 2125 and my apartment number. There was this lady that was with him, and I thought she was, like, a passerby. So as this all began, I said, ma'am, can you please can you please call the police? This man's going to assault me. And this lady gets behind him, and she goes, just tell us where you live. So she's with him. I thought it was his girlfriend. I later found out she was a security guard for a different security unit, but had no – she was in plain clothes. So after he attacks me and I tell him where I live, I, I run into my house and I call the police. And by the time the police get there, this guy is long gone. They've since got his name, his company, and we're filing charges. But I have not been right since. I can't sleep. I can't leave my house. I'm freaked. And uh just want to let everybody know that not everybody who's in security should be trusted. This guy attacked me for no reason when I had every right to be where I am. So, Scott, I love your show. You're amazing. 
I doubt this is going to make it, but I just had to share this with somebody. This is tough stuff. I just woke up from the worst nightmare, and uh, I just had to get it off my chest. Have a good one, buddy. I love your show. You do amazing things. You are the most awesome interview I've ever heard. Have a good one, buddy. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.